The Late Show Poncho with Stephen Colbert. Welcome back, everybody. My first guest tonight is an historian and the best-selling author of How to Be an Anti-Racist and Stamp from the Beginning. Please welcome Professor Ibram X. Kendi. Professor Kendi, thanks for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Um, now you're America's leading scholar on anti-racism, and your 2019 book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is currently a number one nonfiction uh, bestseller. What's the difference between being not racist and being anti-racist? Well, historically, whenever people are challenged for saying and doing something that's racist, typically their response is, I'm not racist. No matter what they just said, no matter what they just did, by contrast, someone who is striving to be anti-racist is actually willing to admit the times in which they express racist ideas. They're willing to admit the times in which they sort of support racist policies because they're in a process of changing. They're changing themselves. They're seeking to change society. They're not necessarily in denial like many Americans who claim they're not racist. Well, I, 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 like, I like that framing of, of the conversation because I, like I'm sure many of Americans, have examined their conscience, especially over the last four weeks, and said, I, I'm, I am a white American. I've benefited from our, our racist systemic racism in our society, and I can't say honestly that I don't uh, have any racism, um, but, but the reframe that you put it uh, allows a, a hope for change. Well, I mean, and humans have the capacity to change, and, and I think we have to pr allow for that. And the question is always, and I think with anything, when, when someone diagnoses us, when somebody explains that we have some sort of problem, the question I think for all of us is, are we gonna deny that problem? Are we gonna deny that addiction even? Or are we going to admit it and then begin the process of changing ourselves, healing ourselves so that we can change and heal this country? And another thing I like about the way you've done this is that you know, while uh, uh, not a racist and anti-racist both might be described as an identity, anti-racist implies action. Oh, it does, and, and really, I'm not racist is an identity because typically a people person believes that's who they are, and mm -hmm. and for somebody who's being anti-racist, it's not it's it's more so what they're being based on what they're saying and, and what they're doing. And so anti-racists know that if they're expressing that the racial groups are equals, they're being anti-racist. If they're challenging racist policies, they're being anti-racist. So you actually have to do something and and be something in order to be anti-racist. Can you be both racist and anti-racist at the same time? Because I'll give you an example. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. That is baldly an anti-racist statement written by a racist man. And even that statement. So you had some people who at the time believed that we were all created equal, which was an anti-racist idea. But then they also believed, let's say, Black and even Native people became inferior on Earth. In other words, their cultures are inferior. They are inferior because of their environment. So we were all equal to begin with, but as a result of the cultures of Black people or even Native people, they're inferior right now. I have a question about the history of racism. 
Is what we think of as racism a modern, and I mean 500 years old, a modern European colonial idea that is merely a subset of inequality, or has there always been some form of racial discrimination? So for a very long time, you can look into the into antiquity and see sexism and see ethnocentrism uh, and see obvious religious persecution, but racism is a modern phenomenon. The concept of race, Black Africa, Native America, even white Europe, is a modern phenomenon that largely comes out of the slave trade, largely comes out of colonialism and, and, and slavery. So why did that, if there have always been sort of like, you know, man's inhumanity to man, why did that, did the sort of the economic um, desire to exploit Africans lead to the justification of it through racism? Exactly. And so, in other words, really the, 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 really the core, the heart, the cradle of, of racism is, is self-interest. In other words, I want to slave trade or enslave African people, even Native people. And so, therefore, I'm going to create policies that make all these different ethnic groups one people, one people worthy of enslavement. And then I'm going to argue that these people are inferior. They're savage people. So, therefore, they should be enslaved. They should be driven from their land that I'm supposedly civilizing. So, you see, the self-interest has led to the racist policies, and the racist policies have led to the racist ideas. And then people believe that these peoples were barbaric and savages, which then made them ignorant and hateful. Well, we may not always have had racism as we perceive it, but humans have always had self-interest. How can, how can you, how can we make it so that being anti-racist is in your self-interest? Well, I think for the vast majority of Americans, being anti-racist or creating a more equitable society is actually in their self-interest. And, and I think that, for instance, white Americans are, are constantly thinking about what they would lose with a radical sort of renovation uh, of, of this country, of, its, of this country's policies, as opposed to what they would gain. So they're too quick to compare themselves to people of color, as opposed to comparing themselves to what people in other Western democracies have. And then the question is, why don't we have paid family leave in the United States? Why don't everyone have access to free health care? Why is there so much income inequality? And one of the reasons you can point to is, is racism and people being constantly manipulated to sort of supporting policies and policymakers against their own self-interest by racist ideas. And, and the, the cudgel of the welfare queen being used to destroy the idea of any sort of social safety net that sort of I saw, you know, growing up in the 1980s. Exactly. And it was a social safety net that wasn't just helping black women or black people. It was helping all Americans, all Americans who, who of course, at times are going to fall and, and need a, a safety net to catch them, to lift them back up. There was nothing wrong with that. Now, um, you say that racist and anti-racist are not fixed identities. Um, you've got an amazing example of someone who's clearly steeped in racism who has become an active anti-racist. Tell the story of um, the David Duke's godson. Oh, yeah. A few years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting um, Derek Black. Derek Black is the, the son of Don Black. Don Black created the website Stormfront. It was really one of the major sort of progenitors of the white nationalist movement. It really groomed his son 
Derek to become like one of the leaders of, of the white nationalist movement to really become like a Richard Spencer. But when Derek Black went to college, he started, some of his friends took him to the side and, and started challenging some of his, his ideas. And ultimately he began changing. I understand he read one of my books along the way and many other books on, on racism. And now he's someone who's striving to be anti-racist. So someone who was raised to lead the white nationalist movement is now striving to be anti-racist. Um, one of the changes going on right now, one of the cultural changes, like monuments being pulled down, perhaps changing the names of army bases that are named after Confederate generals. I have found out that your high school, you went to Stonewall Jackson High School in Virginia, and there was a petition, over 30,000 signatures, to rename that the Imbram X. Kendi High School. And I know this doesn't come from you, but this is happening. How did this come about, and, and how do you feel about that? Well, well, I think, obviously, I'm happy that they're finally changing the name of my high school since it was named after a Confederate general. But I understand people are pushing for this. And one of the people who are pushing for it, I understand, is the great-great-grandson of, of Stonewall Jackson, uh, who, you know, I think is really, you know, a class act, Warren Christian. And he's really showing that we are really not bound by our ancestors, just like we're not bound by the past history of this country's racism. We can create a different type of country that's going to really respect and value black lives and, and the lives of people of color. Now, you've also released another book called Anti-Racist Baby. Why did you decide to write a book about anti-racism uh, for, for babies? Well, I mean, I, I first and foremost have a, a very young daughter and I, I wanted to have a tool for her. I mean, I know that at six months, the babies are already seeing race. I know at two years old, some children are already consuming or believing in racist ideas and discerning who to play with based on a kid's skin color. And I also know that many parents believe their kids are colorblind. And, but if their kids are anything but according to the studies. And, and we should be teaching our kids about racism and being anti-racist even before they can fully understand what that means. Just like we teach them what it means to be kind, what it means to love. These are sophisticated concepts, kindness and love, what we teach our kids early because we value being kind and, and loving and we should value being anti-racist. And the earlier we teach our kids to be anti-racist, the better. Now, as I said, you're, you're, you're a leading voice against racism in the United States. Your wife is an ER doctor at a children's hospital in D.C. She's fighting COVID on the front lines. What gives the two of you hope? Because you're both part of a present vital struggle. Well, I think for, for, for us, I think what, what gives us hope is that you have to believe change is, is, is possible in order to bring it about. And so when she diagnoses a, a young child who has a serious illness, she believes that that kid, that that child can be healed. She has to believe it, right? Like doctors have to believe that. Just like when I diagnose America as, as racist, when I say that even America is stage four metastatic racism, I still believe that, that America can, can, can fight against the odds and, and still heal itself. Well, um, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, uh, thanks for the message. Thanks for the hope.
And thanks for the example. Of course. Yeah, thank you so much. More with Ibram X. Kendi after this. Tonight is an historian and leading anti-racist scholar. He just written two new books, How to Raise an Anti-Racist and Good Night Racism. Please welcome back to The Late Show, Ibram X. Kendi. <laughs> First time we've seen each other in person because the last time we talked was at the height of COVID and it was uh, almost two years ago this week, uh, June 25th, 2020, and we were talking about uh, how to be an anti-racist at the time, your, your book at the time, and also about the ongoing protests in the street following the death of George Floyd. So I, I want to get into how you see the United States and how you see progress two years later. But, but first, I want to talk about your new books. Here we go. This is a book for an adult called How to Raise an Anti-Racist and a book for children called Goodnight Racism. Now, uh, the nice thing is, is that the audio book of the children's book here is actually uh, read by your daughter. (laughs) Imani. What's that like? What's what's that like to, uh, you know, listen to your daughter reading your work? And it was just unspeakable. I mean, it was incredible, I think, especially because she had been actually doing speech therapy. Oh, really? And so to see her and to see her confidence and see how proud of Mm -hmm. uh, herself that she was, I mean, it was just, I mean, it was nothing like it. Now, it almost didn't happen because her grandparents negotiated hard for her. Oh, she has representation? Oh, you know, she definitely has representation. Anything in her rider, like no red M&Ms or something like that? So I literally have to put a gift under her pillow, like, every night now. (laughs) For how long? She, 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 like, was, like, eternity, but, you know, I'm trying to figure out a way to stop it. Depends on how long it stays on the bestseller list. Exactly. That's what it is? Well, uh, okay, remind us, uh, what is the difference between anti-racism as opposed to being just not racist? Well, to be anti-racist is to recognize the racial groups as equals, is to challenge policies that are leading to inequity and injustice, and to really seek to deconstruct racism and create equity and justice for all. So it's active as opposed to a passive response. Exactly. Exactly. Fourth of July is coming up, and we, we, uh, we just celebrated Juneteenth. And, and I love my country, but I think the only way to really love uh, your country or a person is to see them sort it for who it is, yes. to look them in the face. You know, warts at all, all the beauty of that country and all the failings of that country at the same time. And I, you say it's vital that we, we teach the truth to our children, that we teach our kids about racism. Why do you think that's so essential? And at what age are you talking? So it's never too early to start teaching our kids about race and, and racism. Indeed, one of the reasons why racist ideas are so dangerous is because they're so simple. Like, dark is bad. Mm -hmm. White is good. Mm -hmm. 
And, and that's probably why, by three years old, our kids can have an adult-like concept of race, according to scholars. They're already attaching skin color to who's good and who's bad. And so just like when, it, when we think about kindness, like we, we, we start early trying to teach our kids to, to be kind, so too should we start early teaching our kids to be anti-racist. Well, um, one, one of the things you write about is that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. But even you say that you were reluctant to talk to your daughter about racism. What, well, what changed for you? What, what made you change your mind other than, you know, all the racism? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, first, research. I mean, you know, I think the more that I researched this topic, the, the, the more that I realized that the very people who are the most vulnerable to racism are the very people who are the least likely to engage about it, our children. And so it's actually protective to engage them. It's protective for a child to learn there's nothing wrong with them because of the color of their skin, or there's nothing special about them because of the color of their skin. It's protective when our kids are crossing the streets of the world that we teach them to look both ways, to identify things that can hit them and harm them. And, and certainly, these messages can hit them and harm them. Um, one of the arguments you hear um, in opposition to talking to uh, young children or to teach in elementary level school children about racism or the history of racism in America is the ar- argument goes something along the lines of, well, you're going to make white kids feel bad about being white. What, what is your response to that? Well, I, I would say those people are most concerned about our teaching of slavery. So let's just talk about slavery. Sure. If we teach white kids uh, about slavery, we're going to teach them that there were white people who enslaved people and there were black people who were enslaved. And we're also going to teach them that there were white people and black people who challenged and fought against slavery. And, and so my question back to them would, would be, why can't we allow white children to identify with white abolitionists. And... And, you know, and also it, it demonstrates to me that these folks recognize that kids are not colorblind <laughs> uh, and that how we shape the curriculum impacts our children. So then why aren't they concerned about how black kids feel when they're not represented in the curriculum. I I want to talk about another one of your books, which is uh, Anti-Racist Baby, okay? And Ketanji Brown-Jackson was sworn in today as the first black female Supreme Court justice. And your name... Your name up, came up earlier this year in the confirmation hearings for Judge Justice Jackson, who was, was sworn in today. This is what, ha- what happened. Um, Ted Cruz talked to her about a, a curriculum of a school that she was on the board of that included in their library and some of their teachings one of your books, or some of your books, one of which being Anti-Racist Baby. What was it like seeing your work being used that way, sort of, sort of misused as a cudgel for political purposes, in a Supreme Court confirmation hearing? 
I think it was very difficult for me at first because I just didn't know what impact it would have on her actual confirmation. So the fact that... That maybe you wouldn't want to do anything that could possibly hurt the chance. Exactly, right? I mean, I, and, and so the fact that, sh that, that Justice Jackson was, of course, sworn in today, um, you know, is certainly... Uh, I'm just excited about it as everyone else is probably even more excited about because of what happened. But what, it, what, what I also thought about is that, like, literally, I, I can, sus I suspect that Senator Cruz didn't read How to Be an Anti-Racist. It's a couple hundred pages. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> I'm guessing, but, I'm guessing holding this up is not one of the things you do to be an anti-racist. No. And I would just hope Okay, if you're not going to read the adult book, can you at least read the, the, the children's book before you attack it? <laughs> when, when, when we spoke uh, two years ago, you told me, quote, America has stage four metastatic racism, but I still believe that the American people can fight against the odds and still heal itself. Have you seen any progress since then, and what are you paying attention to particularly going forward? So in certain ways, there are people, particularly at the local level, at the state level, who are building anti-racist organizations, who are uh, pushing for equitable policies. They're largely behind the scenes of history. And, but on the other hand, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the mainstream of history, we, you can make a case that things have even gotten worse. Because at least in 2020, we were discussing things like ensuring that everyone can vote easily. At least we were discussing imagining an America where nobody was killed by the police. But, but now, we're not even <laughs> talking about that, at, you know, at a national level. But, but, but behind the scenes, right, in local areas, people are organizing and people are fighting and people are striving to create an equitable and just world. And so that's what I'm looking for. And I'm constantly looking for, are we changing policy? Who's getting into positions of power? And are these policies and powerful people committed to equity and justice? Well, thank you so much for being here. His books, How to Raise an Anti-Racist, and Goodnight Racism are on sale now. Thank you for listening to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Just one more thing. If you want to see more of me, come to The Late Show YouTube channel for more clips and exclusives.